All right. Well, today we're continuing in the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have your Bibles and you'd like to follow along, we're in Matthew chapter 13. We're basically the same area, the same scriptures we were at last week. But whereas last week we looked at the outer, the, the beginning parable, this week we're going to look at the, uh, the ones in the middle. But before we get into that, how often do you think about heaven? I think from what I've read or seen or talked with people, I think there are some folks that think about heaven a lot more than I do. Uh, I certainly long for the afterlife, and I look forward to what it will be like to dwell in the presence of God all the days of my life. But I have to admit that in my heart of hearts, I'm a somewhat pragmatic person, and it's, it's hard for me to devote a lot of thought to something that I can barely get my head around. I can barely even begin to understand what that would be like, which is why I think I love the church, and I think that God's calling in my life to take care of his bride is, is for me, the, the, the vision of hope and glory that I can get my brain around, at least right now, during these days on earth. Because there's a part of me, this is kind of my golden vision, I, I have this belief that if we could just get, get it right, if we could be a church which truly represents Christ to the world, without our own agendas, without our own places that we want to make our little stands and die on these little mountaintops and, and make sure that, that, that we are asserted, if we can kind of get over ourselves and just focus on Christ, I have this idea of what an amazing place the world could be, not just the church, but the world. If everyone who claimed to be Christ would truly follow Christ in an unselfish manner as we see Jesus himself live in the Gospels, what an amazing thing that would be. And I, and I have this, whenever we do the Lord's Prayer, there's this one line that says, you know, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I always think, wouldn't it be great if that could be said of the church? The church is a place where God's will is done as it is in heaven. Without all the little sinful things that we bring into the church as human beings. And actually the Bible says that we'll experience something very much like that. But it's going to be after we go through some very tough times and Christ returns. And, and I don't know, sometimes I feel like that we may be feeling the beginning ripples of a tsunami that comes through and we may face some serious issues in the near future. I, I, I have no uh, shame to say that I prayerfully hope not. I don't really want to be in that last generation that faces tremendous persecution and martyrdom. But, you know, if that's the way it is, that's the way it is. God's will be done. But as long as I have life, I pray there will always be hope to believe that the bride of Christ has potential and has the worthiness in it that is deserving of Christ's sacrifice. And I say all this to preface Jesus' parables about the kingdom of heaven. Because Jesus, when he talks about the kingdom of heaven, we spoke about this last week, he's not talking about what is going to be. He's talking about the establishment of a community, of a kingdom within the world that is going to be in place, and it really comes into place soon after Christ leaves and the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost. That's really the establishment of what we call today the church. And so he tells several parables about this coming kingdom. And we looked at last week, we looked at one of them, and this week we're going to look at the others, but we're going to still be going through that same, uh, same set of scriptures. And within the whole idea of the church is this concept of already, but not yet. 
And the scriptures that were read today out of, out of Psalms and out of 1 Peter, particularly the one out of 1 Peter, very strongly has this sense of already, he says, you've been given this, you've been given this faith, you've been given the Holy Spirit, you've been given you know, this grace of God, but there's still going to be something greater to come. And as while we're waiting for that greater thing to come, there will be times of turmoil. There will be times of persecution. There will be times of difficulty. It's already here, this kingdom, but not yet. And this is a tension that is felt throughout the Bible. Already, not yet. You are counted as righteous in Christ. You are already counted as righteous in Christ. But you have not yet been made fully rebuilt, remade in the image of Christ. And so there's already, but not yet. And so the kingdom of God is very much like this idea of already and not yet. It's established, but there's something greater to it. And so let's go into it now. Jesus told him another parable, starting in verse uh, 24 here of chapter 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the weeds sprouted and formed heads, the weeds also appeared. The owner's servant came to him and said, Sir... Didn't you sow good seeds in your field? Then where did these weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling the weeds, you may root up some of the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then go and gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, when it grows, it is the largest of the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So it was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Then he left the, house, left, then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. The good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are the angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. When Jesus tells us parables, there's a pattern that many scholars have seen, and this is something that's been seen pretty much since the Gospels have been written. You have different types of parables. You have parables of judgment. You have parables of kingdom growth. You have parables of kingdom presence or pervasiveness. And then you have parables of secret treasure. And these are basically the four types of parables you'll see throughout Jesus' parables, these, these four. And what's interesting is that 
Sometimes you'll find these parables coming into the gospel narrative in different places in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And that's because Jesus was an itinerant teacher. Jesus didn't pastor a church like the way that I do at the same location. He wasn't like, you know, pastor of the, the first Christian church of Galilee. You know, he was an itinerant guy. He moved from place to place. And he would, he would share the word of God. And therefore, he would often teach and use the same stories as he went from place to place to place. And this is why the disciples know Jesus' teachings very well. They heard these same teachings over and over and over again. But like any itinerant or, or person that goes from place to place speaking, he would sometimes change the, change the way the parable was told a little bit from place to place. And the disciples, you see that. You see that in the Gospels. Sometimes the parables are told in a little bit of a different way or they're told in a little bit of a different circumstance than, say, Luke or like Matthew would say, it was in this circumstance, Luke would say it was at this time. It's because he, he said that he taught, taught these things more than once. But you also see in the Gospels some of the way the Gospel writers think. And that's particularly true in Matthew. We've said before, Matthew tends to group things together. He likes to take to an idea and then he'll bracket some other ideas with that one idea. And it's like in this case, he takes the parable of the, the guy that sowed the, the, the seed in his field, then the enemy comes, and then Matthew has Jesus telling a few more parables, and then he explains that parable at the bottom end. And he does this more than once. We've seen this more than once, how he takes an idea, and then he kind of brackets that centerpiece, in, uh, which is really what he wants us to pay attention to. He wants us to pay attention very closely to what's in the center. And so what he does here, Matthew does, is he takes three parables, and they're all different. There's a parable of judgment, there's a parable of growth, and there's a parable of, Jesus, of the presence of the kingdom of God. And in this, he gives a kind of a holistic view of what the kingdom of God is like, or the kingdom of heaven is like. And then he follows that up with some other parables. Next week, we'll be looking at some other parables. And Matthew, it's, 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 not, also, it's not a coincidence that it's near the middle of the gospel that all these parables of the kingdom of heaven are found. Because like I just said, he likes to put things in the center that he finds to be of central importance. And so these parables are all near the middle of, God, of Matthew's gospel. And so the picture of the kingdom of heaven is told by Jesus as presented by Matthew in this passage is this. It starts out with the parable of the world's condition. And this is an example last week I was telling you that you have this rye grass that looks like wheat, but when it grows it's a bit taller, that's rye in the middle there, and that's wheat that's surrounding it. So in the parable, as they wait, as the master is patient, in the parable he's saying that in the world there's good and there's evil, and the servants want to immediately remove the evil, just kind of like some of you do. You, you, you wonder, why does God continue to allow evil? Why doesn't he just come and kind of take care of this whole thing? And the master is patient. The master has a plan. And his plan is that he's going to wait until this grows, and then he's going to do the separation. Because I believe there's a bit of a miracle that can take place in this field, is that some of that, that wild grass there, that rye, can turn into wheat. If they just hear the right message and are, and are born again as plants. And so he's, he's waiting there. He's waiting until the end before he separates things out. And that's the condition of the world. So Jesus begins this series of parables by saying the kingdom of heaven is in the context of the world. And in this world, there's good and there's evil. And we don't understand why there's so much evil. We don't understand God's timetable when it comes to taking care of all this evil. But God does. God knows his timetable. And even though we're eager to see these things separated out, God's like, we'll just wait. The harvest is going to come. 
And at that time, it'll be separated out. And then he begins to tell the story about the kingdom of heaven being within this dark world, a little point of light. And in this little point of light, the very word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, and he taught a small group of followers. And this small group of followers then went, and they began to establish this thing called the church. And that little beginning, that little point of light in the darkness takes off. And it begins to grow like crazy. It begins to grow rapidly and quickly, and it provides a place for those that have nothing. It provides a place for the widows. It, it, it supplies a place for the poor. It's a place where the rich and the poor are of equal standing. It's a place where nobility and titles don't really matter. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. And though it's the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree. Not a tree like these trees out here, but more like a big bush, so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. And in this place, we see this taking place in the Scripture. We see this happening in the book of Acts, especially. In the book of Acts, chapter 2, we have this story about the church. It says, those who accepted his message were baptized, so believed, baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Could you imagine what it would be like for us here if next week 3,000 people showed up to go to church? I mean, even at our best, even if we didn't have corona and we didn't have to have the seating chart and all that, 3,000 people would be pretty overwhelming. Well, that's almost what happened to the church. It was about this size. And the apostles began to preach, and 3,000 people joined. That's kind of a logistical nightmare. They, and, so, and so the disciples, they devoted themselves to the, uh, the people, the 3,000, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he has need. That's a a serious change of mindset for the human being. They went from it's all about me gathering my wealth to it's about us and we're going to take care of each other. I believe that we would find that to be a challenge. If I said, this is what I want you all to do. I want you to sell everything and we're going to make sure that there's no one that has any need and we're going to take care of one another. You're not going to possess anything. We as a church will possess it together and I'll include myself in selling everything. I do not think that would go. I don't think we'd do it. Do you think we would do it? (laughs) <laughs> already you're like, no, and don't even try. Yeah. I think it would be tough, but this is what the early church did. Every day, selling their possessions good, they gave to everyone that he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So they were just together, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I think like a lot of you, again, this is an idea that I both long for and I fear. You know, I long for it because I love the beauty of, of the picture that's, that's given here. I have fear, though, because I know that for this to be maintained, I would have to be at my best, and you would have to be at your best. And we see from the Scripture that this ideal didn't last very long, did it? Because sin got in there. Selfishness got in there. It's not too long after this, some guy, a guy named Ananias and his wife Sapphira go out and they sell a field 
And they claimed that all the money was given to the church, and that was a lie. They did it just to look good. You see other places of sin beginning to come in. The widows in the church from Greek backgrounds are complaining that the widows in the church of Hebraic backgrounds, they're all Jewish, but you have Hebraic Jews and Greek Jews. They're complaining that it's unfair, and so this, this leads to the deacons being founded. It wasn't too long before human nature and sin began to break down this idyllic picture of the church. But man, sometimes I think, wouldn't that be beautiful, though, just to, just to be a part of for a while? To see that there is something that we could do that could be greater than just coming and, and, and kind of including our church life into our work life and our social life. And instead of it being just sort of a garnish on the edge of the plate of our life, it really became the centerpiece of who we are. That would be beautiful. And it's true. It's true that the church over the years did some things that were pretty horrific. It's true that over the years, the church had within it the infiltration of sin and some pretty bad things were done in the name of Christ and continue to be done even by people who claim to be Christians. But at its best, at its best, the church has been a place that has welcomed every human being along the journey of faith, a journey where we walk together. Sometimes we step on each other's toes. We learn to say we're sorry. We learn to forgive and we move forward into this place of growth. And yeah, sometimes sin will get the best of us and we break apart, but healing is always a possibility within the church. And some people say, well, the church is really the cause of all the problems around the world. Some people, if you listen to them, you've probably heard this, every single war has been because of religion, which isn't true, but people will say that. And they'll point out to every single you know, blight on human existence and say it's because of the church. But the truth is, if you really look at the world's history and cultures across the world, not just uh, Europe, North America, but in Africa and Asia today, you see the church has had a positive and powerful impact upon values, upon culture, upon even things like science. A lot of the early scientists were monks and priests. But sometimes there's also been a lack of science that the church has promoted, as well as morality has been promoted by the church, Economics has been, has been influenced by the church. Everything throughout the world, be it recognized or not recognized, which is this other parable that Jesus tells. He says, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all throughout the dough. And so the idea here is that the kingdom of God is, is, is worked all throughout the very fabric or the dough of our world, of our life, and it has influence whether it's recognized or not. And I find it interesting that Jesus uses in this parable yeast as his, as his example because he's used yeast before, but he did it in a negative way. He said the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees are like yeast that work its way through the dough. Beware of that. And so his idea behind yeast is that it's, it's something that works its way through, and it's a little bit ambiguous. Is it a good thing or it's a bad thing? Because in Jewish culture, and you have to remember Jesus was Jewish, and he's speaking to Jewish people when he's, when he's doing all this. In Jewish culture, yeast is kind of a funny place. It's not an unclean food. But during Passover, which was the most important feast and the most important celebration among the Jewish community, all yeast was supposed to be removed from the house. And to this day, Jewish families kind of go, uh, who practice uh, during Passover their faith, 
we'll go through this, go through this thing where the, the kids hide a piece of bread that has yeast in it somewhere in the house, and the father has to go and find it. And it's this big deal. He even has a, has a special broom that he sweeps it into. So yeast isn't, isn't unclean, but it is very specifically excluded from the Passover ceremony because it's supposed to be that remembrance that Passover took place quickly. They didn't have time to make bread with yeast, and so they made bread without yeast as they were preparing to leave. So yeast has this kind of, it's not really bad, but it, 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 it's, it's a little bit of an ambiguous kind of symbol that Jesus uses. And when you look at the conflicts in the church and you look at the, the things that go on in the world, the, the church and the world have often struggled as to what, what their position is. You know, before, the, before Constantine, who is this Roman emperor, made, uh, wrote this thing called the Edict of Milan, which tolerated the church. It didn't make it legal, but it tolerated the church. And then in 380 AD, the church was made the official religion of Rome. Before that happened, the church was definitely separate from the government. And, and the church didn't have much influence over the government. The government had a lot of influence over the church. But then that began to, take it, that began to change. And the church actually conquered the Roman Empire without raising a single sword to do it. The empire raised a sword against the church, but the church didn't raise a sword against the empire. And in 380, it became the official religion of Rome. But then we had a problem because the church went away from its mission of seeking the lost and making disciples, and it tried to take over government. And government, you read in the book of, of Romans, government is a system that is set in place by God. But it's not a system that requires the presence of the church to function. Government was around. Kingdoms were around before the church was around. And God puts it there to bring order to the chaos and the craziness that a world that is just run by sin. But we, can all, we all know, you know of governments that government without the presence of Christ can be very efficient and can be very evil. And we all know, if you, if you stayed at least awake for five minutes in history class, what governments look like that are very efficient, very well-structured, but have nothing to do with Christ. They can inflict very efficiently destruction and evil and death upon human beings. But it's never worked out when the church has tried to take over government because what has happened is that the church tends to be, become more like government than the government becoming more like church. So there's a role that's supposed to be played there. It's supposed to be, it's like how the yeast doesn't try to become the dough. The yeast affects the dough. The yeast, its presence is known in the dough, but it doesn't become the dough. And here's the interesting thing about the, this whole thing here, is that you are the yeast. You are the yeast. Since the kingdom of God is like yeast that's, that's spread all throughout the world. Well, who, who, who makes up the kingdom of God? You do. And I think it's, a, it's an interesting analogy because yeast is, like I said, it's a little bit of an ambiguous thing. It's not unclean, but it's, 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 it's excluded from the Passover. And I think in a lot of ways, this kind of is how I feel about who we are. We're not exactly, you know, we're not just creatures of, of, of given over to sin. But our righteousness has not yet been fully revealed. And so we're somewhere in between. We're like, we're believers. We know that we're saved. We want to live better lives. But we're not there yet. We're a little bit like this yeast. We're not quite sure where we fit in, but we have a lot of influence, or we're supposed to have 
a lot of influence in your workplace, among your families, in government, places where you fit in as an individual, not as the institution of the church, but where do you fit in? You are salt, you are light, but you are also this yeast that affects the whole of the dough. I find that interesting. I find that interesting when I think about that, that, you know, what does it mean to be this type of person? What does it mean to be this type of kingdom of God? Do we really influence the world around us? Do we really, have we, are we pervasive throughout the world? Or over the years, have we kind of withdrawn into our own little clumps? And so that we're like this bread that has this clump of yeast that doesn't want to get dispersed into the rest of the dough. It wants to stay, and it wants to be left alone, and it wants to clump together with like-minded folks, and it doesn't really want anything to do with the rest of the dough. It's a question. It's something for us to ponder. And then the scripture goes on. Why does he teach in parables? It says, Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. I find this to be, again, an interesting view of things because one of the things that Jesus does is that he's always teaching lessons that are seen in plain sight, but people have overlooked them. Because I'm sure Jesus is not the first one to see someone casting seed into his field, but he saw in there a teaching that was deep and spiritual about the kingdom of God. I'm sure Jesus wasn't the first one to notice that sometimes weeds grow in a field of good grain, and he saw in there the lesson to teach the kingdom of God. He wasn't the first one to see someone plant a mustard seed, but he saw in there a lesson. And yet most of these lessons were hidden, because we tend to think of God as something that is difficult for us to comprehend. He's beyond our, our comprehension. He's somewhat other than us. And yet, most of God's lessons and God's character is expressed right there in his creation in front of us, which is what Romans chapter 1, verse 20 says. He says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, has been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. In other words, these mysteries hidden since the beginning of the creation of the world were found within the creation of the world. And Jesus just says, look, all you need to understand about God is right in front of you. But you don't see. And sometimes we don't see because our religion, our idea of God gets in the way of just what's presented right in front of us. And if you notice, all of Jesus' parables are very much everyday occurrences. But within that everyday occurrence, he finds the majesty of God, and he shares it. And we might not have an excuse, but we do have a reason for our blindness. And why, is the, why are we blind? Why are we blind to the obvious things that are right in front of us? Why are we blind to the obvious things about you know, what it means to, to be a church? Why are we blind to the obvious things, what it means to be a family? Why are we blind to these things? Because of sin. Sin blinds us. It divides us. It blinds us. It deafens us. It makes us unable to see here, to, to be able to function as a church with each other. Sin wants to cut us off from God. Cut us off our sight, cut off our ears, cut off our senses of our heart, our mind, our soul, completely isolate us, and then destroy us. That is the goal of sin. And that's really the state that people who don't have Christ are in. They're in that place of being cut off. And they may not feel like it, but they are. I had a guy one time I was at a, a meeting, 
And this old pastor came up. He was an Anglican guy in the States Episcopalian. And he told this story, and it was a great story about his son. When his son was about six years old, they were out uh, walking you know, in the park in this, in this city. And the city was kind of unknown to them. He was there visiting. And they lost their son. They turned around, he was gone. And of course, they began to panic, you know. They lost their kid. It's in a strange town. He's only about six years old. And they began running up and down the park looking for him. They couldn't find him. But there was this birthday party going on uh, near, near the, the river. So just they went down there to go see, you know. And sure enough, their son was at the birthday party. He was sitting at the table. He was eating cake. He was having fun. And, uh, and the, the, the pastor told this story, and you're kind of relieved. Okay, they found the son. And he said this. The thing was about my son is he had no idea that he was lost. As far as he was concerned, he was at a party, and everything was fine. He had no idea that he was lost. He had no idea that his parents were looking for him. He had no idea the panic that, his, that the, he had caused in his parents' hearts. He had no idea. And this is really where most of the people are at when it comes to the world. They have no idea they're lost. They're at a party. And their friends are with them. Their family is with them. Everything seems fine. They have no idea. And this is what sin does. Sin, it blinds us to what is true. It gives us a false reality. That false reality is close enough to what we want. And so, we'll, so human beings will follow that. And, but they'll always feel that. There's something missing. But they don't know what it is. In Christ, those scales from our eyes are to fall off, our ears are to open up, and we are to be able to see God and understand that He's given us something that's better than a party. He's given us His very community, His church. It's not perfect. But it's not complete yet. It's not done yet. It hasn't reached its pinnacle. It's still a work in progress. And it can be a beautiful thing. Its ideal is probably as out of reach as our collective perfect righteousness is out of reach. But in those little times when we come close, man, it's very, very sweet. And it's my prayer that we can never give up on moving toward the ideal. We may never reach it in this lifetime, but there's so much more we can be than what we are now if we can learn to set ourselves aside and follow Christ with trust. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your church, and we thank you for the parables of the kingdom, which remind us that there is something that is beautiful, and there is something that is both simple and profound in your community and in the idea of your community. And Lord, we pray that you would walk us as a church and walk us as individuals because this church people come and people leave and they go to different places that they can take a, a belief in a hope that the church can be something that is amazing and beautiful and kind and good. And that we can become that sweet place but we can also share that with others. And Lord, help us to put ourselves aside because just like anyone, and I'm a part of this issue too, I'm part of the problem too, is you know, we, get in, we get in our own way. And Father, help us to know what fights to fight, what fights not to fight. Places to stand, places that we can just agree to, 
to see something different in another point of view and not be threatened by it. And also keep you in the center without compromising the things that are important. And Lord, we pray you'd guide us in this. And that we can be salt and light, we can be yeast, we can be all the different things that you say that we are as the body of Christ in this world. A world that definitely has good and evil in it. A world that makes us weary at times as Christians. A world that we look forward to moving on from, but at the same time we want to hang on to desperately. God, forgive us for this, these places of already and not yet. We thank you that it's your grace that bridges that gap and we can stand and we can grow. Guide us as we seek to serve you. And if there's someone here that doesn't know you, that wants to have that experience, that frustrating but beautiful experience of being part of the community of faith, may they first find community with you through your Holy Spirit as you forgive them of their sins and bring them into relationship with you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.